Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 38. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Part 2. Good morning and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage, and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season we read Till We Have Faces, and last episode we began the Narnian book of this season, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Because we only read the Narnian books in publication order on this podcast, don't try me on this. My name is Captain David Bates, and I'm joined by cabin boy Matt Scurvy-infested bill-drinking swab Bush. <laughs> what happened to Faithful or Unfaithful? That guy dropped? No, I got dropped. You, you failed in the last episode. <laughs> I'm not even going to try giving you that. <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, drink of the week. I'm still here in Georgia, which is just fantastic. And drinking Dewar's White Label again, because that's what he had in his cabin. Cabinet. And I'm still here in San Diego drinking my Captain Morgan rum. Mm. Well, cheers, matey. Well, hang on, no, no, you got to give us the quote of the week first. Oh, dang, so I just have to make a fool of myself again with that. <laughs> so, quote of the week comes from the man himself, the animal himself. I was going to say man? He's not a man. <laughs> Aslan, in your world, I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. It's right near the end of the book, which is so fitting based on what we mentioned last time about knowing. There's a lot of the word know in here. And they got to intimately know Aslan. And how I would describe that intimately knowing it, and I meant to say this in the last one, is in, in struggles, in fears, in battle, in moments when they were weak and they called on him, that's when we get to know Jesus Christ. Whoa, is that who Aslan represents? <gasps> Don't let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> no, but that's how we do it. It's in life's struggles. It's a short answer. That's what we mean by knowing. You got to call on him. And we're going to toast one of our Patreon supporters today. I'm going to toast Travis Barnes. So, Travis, may you find the utter east and end up in Aslan's country, just like Reaper Cheap. Cheers. Great toast. Cheers. Huh. We didn't do the cheers, matey. Okay, let's, let's do that again. Nick, leave this in. Cheers, my matey. Cheers, matey. <laughs> yeah, we make fools of ourselves. I love it. <laughs> When I first visited Baltimore, I visited there on Privateer Day. So everybody was dressed like pirates. It was amazing. Plus, I got to do all of my pirate jokes. So, Matt, why do pirates be called pirates? Oh, man, it's going to kill me because it's going to be so obvious. They just are. Oh, dang. <laughs> Matt, how much do pirate earrings cost? They cost $1 each. It's not bad for a buccaneer. <laughs> I was going down the camp of they're free, they stole them or something <laughs> in my head. But I was trying to figure out how I could connect that. And, and if I'm ever with math nerds, it's how do pirates calculate the circumference of a circle? Using 2 pi r. <laughs> oh, David. And I can pretty much just go through all of the circle and sphere related formulae because they all have r's in them. Oh my goodness, <sighs> this is great. This is what it's like having me as a friend. Just this endless supply of wonderful jokes. I need to start doing uh, my college roommate, person I'm here with Georgia, always says, because I do stupid stuff. He goes, what the heck, Bush? 
What the heck? <laughs> Although he doesn't use the word heck. Well, for those who remember, we mentioned this in the last episode. Next week is going to be when we have, are you here? It's already been recorded. Our conversation with Daniel and Phil from the Lamp Post listeners. I'm excited for it. Excited for you guys to hear it. It's going to be a great conversation. We're going to be talking about the movies, which if you really want to come for anything, obviously Daniel and Phil are the main attractions, but David's probably disdain for the movies versus the book is going to be well worth tuning in for. <laughs> yes, come and enjoy my misery. This is going to be this is going to be second only to chronicle versus chronological versus publication order. You know what? I think I might hate this movie more. <laughs> I will save my vitriol for next week. Because at the moment, we are reading the book, which is way better. And in the story so far, Edmund and Lucy have traveled to Narnia with their annoying cousin Eustace through a picture in the wall. And they find themselves on board the Dawn Treader, where King Caspian, who they helped set up as king in the previous book, uh, he is now searching for some lords that his uh, uncle Miraz sent away. They come to the Lone Islands and restore order. They survive a tempest, and Eustace is turned into a dragon, and then back again into a boy. So I think that pretty much brings the story up to speed. So let's talk about Chapter 8, Two Narrow Escapes. They leave Dragon Island, and they land on an island they call Burnt Island. And this island is deserted, and the only reason to mention it is that this is where they find a small coracle. It's a little boat there, uh, which Reaper Sheep takes, because it's the perfect size for him. After a few days, they see something strange in the water, and it turns out to be a sea serpent. And in the last episode, I spoke about the link between the sun, because in Dr. Michael Ward's Planet Narnia, the Narnia Code, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is the book about the sun. And I mentioned that the sun god, Apollo, he was associated with dragons and being a dragon slayer. Well, here we have the sea serpent, which is really just another kind of dragon. And the serpent starts wrapping itself around the boat, and... Eustace demonstrates his transformed heart by acting bravely, by showing some heart for a change, and he attacks the snake. He doesn't actually achieve anything, but it's very much appreciated by the, 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 all of the crew afterwards, his bravery. And, it's, and it's, it should be noted that Lewis emphasizes that for a reason, because, again, it's about his heart. Results don't really matter in the eyes of God. He wants to know that our hearts are pursuing him, desiring him, and trying to do his will. If we're falling short, I mean... Because of our weakness or we're just not strong enough to kill evil sometimes. That's okay. It's the courage that matters. I think it's a saying from Mother Teresa of Calcutta. She said something along the lines of, God doesn't call us to be successful. He calls us to be faithful. Mm, then we can do, we can't do great things, just small things with great love. That's what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> I like to mix it up. <laughs> but that's also a great quote. Uh, so yes, Eustace's attack doesn't work. And it's actually Reaper Cheap who comes to the rescue, but not in his usual fashion. And I will rant about the movie later, but this is one of the things I love about the book. The way they take the Lone Islands is by being smart. And the way that they defeat the sea serpent, Reaper Cheap sheathes his sword for a change, doesn't go charging in, as he seems to do in every other situation. He tells him to push. And so as this serpent is wrapping itself around the boat and it will then pull tight and snap the thing into a bunch of matchsticks, they actually push him off the back of the, of the boat. And the sea serpent is kind of stupid, and it just suspends all its time then looking to see where the boat is while they're sailing off into the distance. Can we psychologically unpack, David, why you uh, 
really appreciate in the book how freeing the slaves versus getting out from this are both done with intelligence and wit versus in the movie they just they go to brute arms it becomes a dumb action flick. <laughs> sure, we can talk about that. <laughs> oh, I noticed that the both of those scenes, because you pointed that out in the last one too, the slaves one, it was it was all through intelligence in the book and it was through arms and force in the movie. Yeah, yeah. I agree, by the way. I appreciate when intelligence wins. So after the sea serpent, they sail for a few more days and they discover another island. It's kind of like Star Trek. You know, each episode they come to a new planet and they come to this island and they go ashore to mainly get water. And there are two streams that they can choose from and they choose one, but then it starts to rain and that pushes them to go to the other stream where there is a little bit more shelter. And this is going to turn out to be very providential. I wonder if someone is in charge. Because after getting the water, they explore a little bit more and they actually go down to the other stream, the one that they had originally intended to go and get water from. And it's there that they find a Narnian sword and armor. And nearby, there's this lake with this golden statue at the bottom. Matt, did you guess what was going on here? Not at first. What was it that gave it away? It wasn't until the book actually said, person turns to gold. I mean, I should have known when the spear went in and he lost hold of the spear because it became too heavy. But even then it didn't. I honestly just assumed it was a golden statue in the bottom at first. Yeah. Also, when they realized that it was a man that jumped in and was then turned to gold, that just seems horrible. That seems a horrible way to die. It really does. Well, you know what I, I did appreciate about the movies? Maybe you're going to hate this. Ugh. In the movies, they had already met the magician, which I didn't necessarily like that they met him sooner. But the magician says, as you venture on this quest or this journey, you are going to be tempted in various ways. And so at least it highlighted that they're about to be tempted because this is really probably one of the first temptations of the spirit, greed, in this moment because they're sitting in this, this pool that turns everything to gold. You can, have, you can have all the power in the kingdoms in the world, which you're probably about to explain that Edmund started realizing. And I appreciated that whenever we're on this journey towards the East, towards Christ, there will be temptations along the way. So I did like that they emphasized that. Well, if you like things spelt out for you, sure. <laughs> you were waiting to say that for when I stopped talking. Yeah, it's like, stop talking. I want to say why I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> but either way, they, they work out. They finally realized that it was one of the Narnian lords who, on a hot day, had taken off his clothes, dived into the lake, and turned into this golden statue. Caspian claims the island, names it Goldwater Island, and swears everyone to secrecy. And then he and Edmund then start arguing over the ownership. And it's Aslan who brings them to their senses. They see him uh, shining like the sun and huge. And it's then Reaper Cheap, the, the smart one of the group, who says that rather than Goldwater Island, they should call it Deathwater Island. I don't know how we're going to do on time with this episode, but I'm curious your thoughts here real quick. So there's a, they don't want the others to see this island because it's going to tempt them and it's going to derail them. What do you think philosophically or theologically... At the end of the day, it's our hearts that determine whether we get to heaven or not. I mean, it's God's grace, sorry. But turning into our hearts to desire him and him alone for eternity. What if you're a person that you would desire greed, but you're just prevented from ever even having that temptation come to you? But if it did, you would slip. Does that mean your heart is prepped for heaven? Because if it came, you would have fallen into it. But it just never came. And so you just never had to deal with that. Because at some point, your heart does need to be transformed fully. That If that's in front of you, it's like, no, I don't want that. I want God. Curious your thoughts. Well, I would say you'll never be able to be completely isolated from any of those temptations. Hmm. 
we're all tempted in the same ways. It's just a question to varying degrees. Uh, but I think of the Apostle Paul's words when he says, flee from temptation. Uh, I have my own personal weaknesses. I know them. My confessor knows them. My fiance knows them. Uh, and Your podcast co-host knows them. Yeah, he knows some of them. Uh, <laughs> and then part of the Part of the point of the spiritual life is knowing myself such that I flee from temptation. I don't put myself in situations where I know the things which I am really susceptible to, that I'm going to be tested and repeatedly tested. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think anybody can be entirely isolated. And I actually think it shows the cardinal virtue of prudence when you know yourself such that you don't go... In, in, in Catholicism, we refer to this as the near occasion of sin. Basically, don't if you have a problem with alcohol, don't spend all of your time hanging out at bars. It's going to end badly. That's like the classic advice I get at the end with a priest is if there's something struggling with, what are you doing to avoid the near occasion of sin? And it's, it's wise, prudence. And what it means is that when, you, when those situations then do come, you have kind of fresh resources to, to deal with it when it happens. Whereas if you are habitually putting yourself in a place where you will repeatedly be tempted, it's simply a matter of time mm -hmm. before you fall. Perfect. Thanks for the tangent. You're welcome. Great tangent. <laughs> and so now we come on to chapter nine, the island of the voices. So there's some time lapse between the last island and they're running out of resources and they come to this one just in time. And there they discover this beautifully maintained property, this house. And while Lucy is tying up her shoelace, she hears a group of disembodied voices talking about capturing the Narnians uh, when they try and get back to their boat. So when the voices are gone, she rejoins the rest of her party, tells them about it. And what do you think Reaper Cheap says they should do? <laughs> Go out into battle. <laughs> Whereas everyone else says run. He goes, nope, nope, we're going to go and face them. That was my favorite part about this book, actually, was Reaper Cheap. I mentioned it in the last episode very briefly. I won't expand much here, but just I walked away from this book. I said in the beginning, I had a harder time getting into it at first. I walked away desiring a more courageous heart. And if, if a book, a movie or something does that to you, that's incredible. And I'm going to say a nice brief thing about the movie. I did quite like the line, my land was made for hearts such as yours. I cried. You just beat me to what I was going to say later. That's the thing that I said at the end was the best part of the movie. I literally teared. He's, he, because you've, even the speech that Reaper Chief says in the beginning, where he's like, this has been my greatest desire and everything I've done has come to this and this is where I've been journeying to. And he goes, my heart is made for lands like this. And I was like, oh. Uh, okay, right. That's enough being nice about the movie. Back to the book. <laughs> uh, when they eventually confront the voices, they say that they want Lucy to do something for them. They explained that on this island, in that house, there is a magician that they used to work for. And he asked them to do something that they didn't want to do. So they snuck into his house to cast a spell. And in a bit of a panic, they cast a spell which made them all invisible. And they want Lucy to go back into the house and undo the spell for them. Lucy agrees in order to protect her friends, which is good. Uh, and they all go back to the house and eat. And I just want to talk a little bit about these creatures. We'll know them as the duffel puds or the duffers. And they're kind of annoying. They keep saying banal things and they're always agreeing with each other. It's like, it's getting dark now. Always does at night. Ah, you've come over the water. Powerful wet stuff, isn't it? This is like, ugh. And I know Daniel and Phil, I think, I think it was Phil more so, found them really annoying. 
I love the duffers. I hate them in real life, <laughs> but in a book <laughs> where I can just view them as silly creatures, I enjoy them far more. It was, it was, yes, I would hate them in real life, but it was hilarious, particularly after she does it and they're visible and Lucy's trying to go out there and convince them that they're beautiful and not ugly. And, and he makes the comment and the chief duffer, because they all agree with the chief duffer, more or less, if that's what he was called. Um, she's like, oh yeah, you guys are beautiful. Oh yeah, yeah, one day we were beautiful. He goes, oh, wiser words have not been said. And they're going back and forth. It's like, that's not what I said. It, was, it made me chuckle. Yeah, I'm saying the complete opposite. Oh, there's nothing like an opposite. Great saying. Well done. <laughs> it was great. I enjoyed it. It was a good addition to the book. And so after the feast that night, the following day, Lucy goes up the stairs to where the book is kept. And I think Lewis's ability to build tension is wonderful. It's, it, it's really creepy as Lucy slowly walks down the corridor to the last door on the left and sees the strange masks and the scary writing on the doors and the, the creepy mirror with a, with a beard picture in front of it i also think i'll just say it now i could just could say it later because you'll probably bring it up but i also loved how once she realized after everything became visible which we'll see in a second that none of the stuff was scary she's walking by it in a new view so her perception is very different and like huh it's actually quite cool how we can create things in our heads and we're going to see something very similar when they come to the dark island in the book when they look back i think this this is this is a book where lewis teaches us the virtue of courage and again, the word courage comes from the Latin root core, meaning heart, about having heart when you're going out into the unknown and you're feeling a bit scared, but you go out anyway. Mm, that's probably, mm, well done, David. You might've just made me like this book even more. Because yes, that, like I said, that's what I felt with it. I couldn't put it quite so eloquently, but if you were talking about this book, that's the short answer. It teaches you the virtue of courage in such a beautiful way. So Lucy comes to the reading desk in the center of the room where there is the book. And Lewis writes, it was written, not printed, written in a clear, even hand with thick downstrokes and thin upstrokes, very large, easier than print, and so beautiful that Lucy stared at it for a whole minute and forgot about reading it. The paper was crisp and smooth and a nice smell came from it. And in the margins and round the big colored capital letters at the beginning of each spell, there were pictures. You can tell this was written by somebody who loves books. <laughs> Yes. And we get uh, a little bit of an introduction to some of the spells that are in the books, uh, the ones that Lucy is particularly interested in, such as an infallible spell to make beautiful her that uttereth it beyond the lot of mortals. And that one in particular was great because Lucy sees herself as beautiful and she sees the visions of really what, ha what would happen if she said this spell and she sees tournaments and battles over her beauty as well as her sister Susan, back in England, looking grumpy. But fortunately, Aslan snaps her out of it. There's so much I want to say here, and I'm not going to say too much, because we'll have a chance to say more in the movie, because the movie did this scene first at a different time and in a different way. But I, one, appreciate that Lucy, who's also probably my second favorite character, probably close with the Reepicheep, just because of her her belief. So with Reepicheep, it's courage. With her, it's this... Trust, maybe trust is the right word. Faith. Cla I think I think Andrew Lasso, I've heard him say before, she has clarity of vision. Yeah, she she is always the one who sees Aslan. She's the one who finds Narnia. Yeah, or like seeing versus perceiving. Maybe use the word perceive. Like she can see, perceive in a beautiful way because her heart is so open and oriented to it. It's nice to see here a little bit of flaws too. She's not perfect. So I appreciate that. And 
I will just, I won't say any more beyond this, but in the movie, we're going to talk about this with the guys. I really did appreciate what they did. Should have placed it here. Ask yourself when we think we're need to be more beautiful. I'll say this much. We're missing our beauty already in the role that we play, the impact we play in people's lives in the way that God's using us. It's almost a slap in God's face when we want to be made beautiful because he's like, oh, if only you saw me the way I see you, or you saw your impact the way I see your impact. The movie played that out well. We will talk about that in with Phil and Daniel. And the only other thing I'll add to that is think of all that we learned from Till We Have Faces about what it takes to be beautiful. Yes. Mm, There we go. Some cliffhangers. Got to come back next week. (laughs) Uh, the next spell that Lucy sees uh, is one that will let you know what your friends think about you. And Lucy reasons that because she didn't say the last spell, she deserves to say this one. And I liked this one and wish the movie would have did this one. Because how many times do we do that? I, I have had conversations with friends when they said, well, you know, I was tempted in this way, but I resisted it. And because I resisted it, I then went to indulge myself in this other way. This is the kind of nonsense the sin does to us. Yes. Uh, the next spell is actually more of a story. It's called For the Refreshment of the Spirit. And Lucy loves it. And she tries to read it again, but the book won't let her turn, turn back. And when she tries to remember the story, it seems to be slipping away. And she says, oh, it was about a cup and a sword and a tree and a green hill. We'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. But she then finally comes across the spell to make hidden things visible. And as she starts reciting the spell, the, the pictures ap- uh, appear in the margin. Again, it's, it's, a, it's a very visual idea that Lewis has now used multiple times in his books. And after she's spe- said this spell to make invisible things visible, she hears something coming up behind her. Oh, Aslan, she said, it was kind of you to come. I have been here all the time, said he, but you have just made me visible. Aslan, said Lucy, almost a little reproachfully, don't make fun of me. As if I could make you visible. It did, said Aslan. Do you think I wouldn't obey my own rules? What did you make of that? Loved it. <laughs> first of all, it reminded me of the, which is my very first ever journal and is full of the two steps in the sand and then one step in the person thinks Jesus abandoned the person in the tough times, not realizing that the feet prints were Jesus' feet prints carrying the person. We just don't always see it. And so I love that. I've always been here. You just made me visible. Now, I'll yield to you because I don't know as much what is meant by I wouldn't, do you think I wouldn't obey my own rules? Like, I mean, I get it on the surface, but is there something deeper there? I would say it points to two things for me. One, it points back to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with the magic and the deeper magic. Remember when the White Witch is quoting the deep magic to, to the lion and he says, don't quote that to me. I was there when it was written. Uh, the idea of the law which uh, Aslan fulfills, that he obeys the rules. He doesn't just let Edmund go, and he doesn't just take Edmund, uh, that he still has to play by his own rules. And it also makes me think of the incarnation, when Jesus becomes incarnate, becomes a little baby, and lives our experience, up and then begins his ministry, that there is a, a condescension and a consistency inside God. I think that's where I would go with this. Would you go, and I don't want to open this up too much, because I remember us going back to mere Christianity, but the concept of why did Jesus have to die on the cross too? I mean, there was some deeper rule that needed to be satisfied, 
I know we're getting into atonement theology stuff here, but like it's the question is, why does God have to do this? Why didn't he just forgive you without taking on the sins of the world? And I would say that the short answer is God is not arbitrary. Okay. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> but that did, it just dawned on me right now as we were talking that there's something there too, like someone needed to die or atone for these sins and it's going to be God himself that takes it on his shoulders. And it's fitting to see us, to see what our sin looks like. But let's go on because I want to talk about what Aslan says next. Child, he said, I think you have been eavesdropping. Eavesdropping? You listened to what your two schoolfellows were saying about you. Oh, that. I never thought that was eavesdropping, Aslan. Wasn't it magic? Spying on people by magic is the same as spying on them in any other way. And you have misjudged your friend. She is weak, but she loves you. She was afraid of the older girl and said what she did not mean. I don't think I'll ever be able to forget what I heard her say. No, you won't. Oh dear, said Lucy. Have I spoiled everything? Do you mean we would have gone on being friends if it hadn't been for this? And been really great friends, all our lives perhaps, and now we never shall? Child, said Aslan, did I not explain to you once before that no one is ever told what would have happened? Yes, Aslan, you did. Okay, Matt, did you, did you have any thoughts on, on that section? Oh, did I have any thoughts, David? I always have thoughts, full of opinions and thoughts. Whether they're smart, that's another question. But first of all, this was, just if listeners weren't catching back, this is when she had that chance to say that magic spell of what your friends think of you, since we talked a little bit in between then. Yeah, I mean, whew. I, I first of all, I've sympathized with the friend. I've been in those positions before where... Never would like throwing someone under the bus and stuff, but sometimes you're afraid, even with families, dynamics or friendship stuff. And you just, that's brought me to confession more often than I would like to admit, where someone's talking about someone else and I'll try to defend what I can, but then sometimes I just, I don't want to offend in some deep way. Or honestly, I just don't want confrontation in the moment. So I don't fully say, hey, that's not a nice thing to say. And it's not only a fear of not wanting the confrontation, it's also recognizing the person could just come back and say, okay, don't stand on a moral high ground right now, Matt, because I'm not that great of a person either. <laughs> and so I sympathize with a friend. I sympathize with Lucy there of seeing that. I would never want to have heard that. But it was interesting how it couldn't be undone. And yeah, I thought Asin was going to go in a direction of grace or something, but I don't know. I think he's showing that you can't change what's happened, but you can change what happens from here. And I think it's the important lesson of learning that when someone does something which hurts us, more often than not, it's due to personal weakness rather than malice. Yes. Have you read The Four Agreements? No. Okay. So it's kind of a popular book, more for the spiritual, but no one falling in a camp of a faith, but more of a new agey spirituality. I don't want to bash. It's a great book. But anyways, Don Miguel Ruiz. And one of them is Don't Take Things Personally. Most often not the way people respond to or treat you is to do with them and not you. Their insecurities potentially projecting on you, maybe a terrible day at work, they come home and your spouse chews you out, probably has little to do with you and more to do with them and their weaknesses, their wounds and their insecurities. And it's true, but it's really hard. It's easier said than done. I say this and listeners probably like, oh yeah, I wish I could do that. Yeah, so do I. (laughs) (laughs) Now, so Aslan said that he wouldn't tell her what would have happened because what's the point? Uh, and uh, Lizzie has another question, and he says, Speak on, dear heart. She says, Shall I ever be able to read that story again, the one I couldn't remember? Will you tell it to me, Aslan? Oh, do, do, do. Indeed, yes, I will tell it to you for years and years. 
But now, come. We must meet the master of the house. So I'm interested, Matt. What is your guess? What is the story? My first thought when it talked about the tree, what were... A cup, a sword, a tree, and a green hill. Yeah, my thoughts were Christ, the crucifixion, and it was just a story of his love for us. And when we fully recognize that story in eternity and being told it, we realize how loved we were and our self-worth. And because of that, it's one of the greatest things we want to hear, even though we've all heard it today. It's hard to really realize it. And it's the story that will be proclaimed for all eternity. Yeah, I'm in 100% agreement. I think that's what Lewis is going for. Yeah. So it was literally split like the first thing I thought of. So he, he leads you to it well. <laughs> uh, and then we come to chapter six, where Lucy meets Koryakin. And uh, I'd like to read a little bit more of this. And the one thing I found when I was reading through this, preparing to talk about it, so much stuff that happens at the magician's house, I love. For me, this book is really three scenes. Eustace being undragoned the interactions around the spell book and Koryakin, and then at the very end. Yes, 100%. Those are the ones I liked. And that's why I said the book was great. I wish the narrative would have held me a little bit more in some of the initial stuff. Like, But the, those three scenes really were the ones that jumped out to me too. Yeah, around the rest of it, it's episodic. And in that sense, I, I compared it to Star Trek earlier. I, I People are going to hate me for saying that. But it's similar in the regard that so many of the episodes of Star Trek, you could cut them out of canon and it would make no difference. Yes. And so what I will say that I think the movie was trying to do was trying to give an overarching narrative, an overarching storyline and pull everything together. I think it did a, I think it did a terrible job, but that's what it was trying to do. A hundred percent agree. That's what I was about. To, I was going to say that is what the movie attempted to do was add this suspense that hooks you, that you're curious, your brain likes closure. If it doesn't get it, it waits till the end and it pulls you in. Book didn't have that as much, but it had the wisdom in it. And the movie tried to, I think it did to some degree, but not super successfully. And it also diluted those three scenes, which was a negative in my mind. I think you might say it was a missed opportunity. <laughs> oh, David. Oh, David. Uh, well, we'll explain more when we talk with the lamppost listener, guys. Yeah. Okay, let's get me back to my happy place. <laughs> Corey Arkin in the book. Oh, idiot that was on the movie. Ugh. Anyway, Lucy followed the great lion out into the passage, and at once she saw coming towards them an old man, barefoot, dressed in a red robe. His white hair was crowned with a chaplet of oak leaves. His beard fell to his girdle, and he supported himself with a curiously curved staff. When he saw Aslan, he bowed low and said, Welcome, sir, to the least of your houses. Do you grow weary, Koryakin, of ruling such foolish subjects as I have given you here? No, said the magician. They are very stupid, but there is no real harm in them. I begin to grow rather fond of the creatures. Sometimes, perhaps, I am a little impatient, waiting for the day when they can be governed by wisdom instead of this rough magic. All in good time, Koryakin, said Aslan. Yes, all in very good time, sir, was the answer. Do you intend to show yourself to them? Nay, said the lion with a little half-growl that meant, Lucy thought, the same as a laugh. I should frighten them out of their senses. Many stars will grow old and come to take their rest in the islands before your people are ripe for that. 
And today, before sunset, I must visit Trumpkin the Dwarf, where he sits in the castle of Care Paravel, counting the days till his master Caspian comes home. I will tell him all your story, Lucy. Do not look sad. We shall meet soon again. Please, Aslan, said Lucy. What do you call soon? I call all time soon, said Aslan. And instantly he was vanished away, and Lucy was alone with the magician. Gone, said he, and you and I quite crestfallen. It's always like that. You can't keep him. It's not as if he was a tame lion. Come, said the magician. All times may be soon to Aslan, but in my home, all hungry times are one o'clock. You're not going to be expecting this. You know what movie this made me think of? Uh, Harry Potter? Nope, The Dark Knight. Okay, unpack that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, short answer. Uh, Just a part of it, when Aslan disappears somewhat unexpectedly, and he says, gone instantly, and Batman always disappears, and then he's he's speaking to Harvey Dent. Yeah, he does that. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Right? (laughs) Oh, dear. As as the Flash says in Justice League, well, that's kind of (laughs) rude. Yeah, out of that whole thing, there's so much wisdom, and that's what I pulled out of it. Uh, yeah i i just wanted to say i think lois is doing some clever things here when he's speaking about Coriakin's rule of the duffers that currently they are ruled by rough magic and he longs for the day when they can be ruled by wisdom Mm. it's it's almost like in salvation history when you see god's manifestations uh they are it's probably not the right word but maybe cruder in the old testament it, it's it's more like when you're dealing with a dealing with a toddler, you can't just reason with them. You you have you have to be just a little bit more basic, a little bit more clear. But there will come a day when the child will grow up and can reason. When you know earlier commands like stay out of the kitchen or stay away from the cupboard under the kitchen with those pretty blue liquids, when that can fall away and you know an adult child can now help you take the bleach and do cleaning. Coincidental time to be talking about bleach. <laughs> no one realized we're recording this. The d- we are moving on from that comment. <laughs> we're recording this really early from when it's released. I, whoa. You, yeah. I, you want to know something else ironic? We're not only talking about bleach. We're also talking about a book that's all about sunlight. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So this is, if people put together, this is where it was talked about in the Donald Trump press conference of UV light and bleach internally curing coronavirus this is literally like within two days of that <laughs> oh boy okay wait let's uh let's move swiftly on before uh before we get into politics uh Coriakin produces this wonderful meal for lucy produced by magic lots of english foods there uh and rather interestingly the magician he only eats bread and wine Ooh, fascinating hmm. Uh, sort of a Melchizedek figure and somebody else who did things with bread and wine. Who knows? Mm. Uh, I haven't had bread and wine in about six weeks from this moment. Yeah, me too. Ugh, sucks. Anyway, um, and while they're eating, the magician tells us some stories about the duffers and how silly they are. He says, a few months ago, they were all for washing up the plates and knives before dinner. They said it saved time afterwards. I've caught them planting boiled potatoes to save cooking them when they were dug up. One day, the cat got into the dairy and 20 of them were at work moving all the milk out. No one thought of moving the cat. <laughs> that was one of Lewis's better better works, better paragraphs in this work. Who do you think the duffers are meant to 
we're not going to commit the sin of allegory, but let's just say that we were tempted to. Who do you think the duffers might represent? I actually genuinely thought they represented us. Yeah. <laughs> You're good. You're on the same page. I'm like, God, angels, people have to look down on us and think, oh my goodness, do they realize how dumb they are sometimes? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah it's stupid and all about trying to agree with one another and whatever is the prevailing popular opinion or whatever cultural icon is leading us. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they then go and see the duffers and we find that they're basically dwarves with one large foot and... Uh, yeah, and we have just another classic scene where they're jumping to one another and saying, oh, we're visible again. Visible we are. <laughs> and what I say is when a chap's visible, they can see one another. Ah, oh, there it is. There it is, chief, cried all the others. There's the point. No one's got a clearer head than you. Couldn't have made it plainer. She caught the old man napping, the little girl did, said the chief monopod. We've beaten him this time. And if we're saying that maybe the magician is kind of like a godlike figure and this is how we relate to him. And, you know, we think that we're getting one over on him. It's like, how stupid are we? Somebody actually asked me a question on Facebook. It related to um, uh, what he saw, saw as, a, as a loophole in salvation. And it's like, do you really think you can just trick God like some inept middle manager? Nah. I thought of what I thought about here was similarly, but in a little bit lighter vein of when we try to rationalize ways we turn from God. So maybe not, I don't necessarily say I duped him. Not maybe quite that dumb, but I think to myself, oh, but that, yeah, that's the reason why I did it. And I rationalize it, which is honestly as stupid in the eyes of Christ, where he's like, all right, huh, yeah, no, you're still going to bear the same consequences and not his punishment, but the consequences of sin that essentially they won't bring us the satisfaction we like, or we'll get caught up in them. And he realizes that now he's not laughing. He's sympathizing and trying to pull us back away. But anyways, that's what I thought of. Yeah. And Lucy even says, uh, but do they dare talk to you like that? They seem so afraid of you yesterday. Don't they know you might be listening? And oh, oh, sorry, right there. That's that scene. That's the scene. Sorry, I'll put that where I'm literally like I'm in confession, confessing a sin and complete anguish and fear. And then two days later, I'm somehow rationalizing and doing the same thing again. Yeah, well, it's different this time, you know. Yeah, <laughs> different situation. Right on, chief. Right on. Nobody's got a clearer head than you. <laughs> <laughs> And Koryakin says, that's the one funny thing about the Duffers. One minute they talk as if I ran everything and overheard everything and extremely dangerous. And the next moment they think they can take me in by tricks that a baby would see through. Bless them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, see, this is this is why I enjoyed it. So after they leave Koryakin, they sail again and they come across this great darkness. And all of the sailors are very nervous about it. I, I kind of think of when I'm driving in really thick fog and I get in my car, it's like, oh, do I really want to try and do this? This seems really dangerous moving forward at any level of speed when I can't see where I'm going. Uh, and needless to say, it's Reaper Jeep that basically calls them all cowards. <laughs> he says, if I were addressing peasants or slaves, I might suppose that this suggestion proceeded from cowardice. But I hope I will never be told in Narnia that a company of noble and royal persons in the flower of their age turned tail because they were afraid of the dark. <laughs> <laughs> I like how his, I really do genuinely like how he just simplifies it. It's just a dark blob. <laughs> if we if we come across something, we'll deal with it then. But let's not overly analyze this. Yes. And uh, in the end, Caspian says, oh, bother you, Reaper Cheap. I wish we left you at home. But they then do proceed. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they hear a voice crying in this darkness, calling out for mercy. And the stranger swims up to the boat and they bring him aboard. And he, he begs them just to flee from this darkness because he says, this is a place where dreams, or I think it'd be much more helpful if he said nightmares, come true. 
And then they all begin hallucinating uh, their greatest fears. Yeah, the movie really screwed this up by bringing the snake into here. Dumb. That would have been mine, though, by the way. Dumb. Would have told. <laughs> yes. Would have, I could have totally related, though. <laughs> That's like my deepest fear. I have night terrors with snakes. Oh, my college roommate knows all about them. <laughs> Literally, I wake up and freak out. I've broken windows for them. So for another day, for another day, listeners are going to be like, I want to hear those stories. That'll be a Skype, a Skype session. The torture dreams of Matthew Bush. Oof, I've had so many. They're they are priceless. Running quarter mile out in the middle of public with my boxers on at 2 a.m., <laughs> breaking a window to get out because I thought a snake was in my room. I mean, there's some great stuff there. <laughs> oh, what a mental picture. Oh, yeah. um, so like Lucy, I'm whispering, Aslan, if you ever loved us now, send us help. <laughs> yeah, I should, I should probably offer them up in prayer. I just enjoy them. They make great stories. And following Lucy's prayer, uh, they see an albatross and this beam of light that Lucy looks along. And we've mentioned it a few times on the podcast, uh, Lewis's essay, Meditation in a Toolshed, where he talks about the difference between seeing and perceiving the analytical versus experiential knowledge and looking along a beam of light, breaking into a shed and being able to see the world outside and the sun all those miles away. But... I love that in that dark moment, Lucy offers uh, a whispered prayer and that in some ways she began to feel just a little bit better. Everything wasn't solved right away, but she found a little bit of strength to to carry on. I underline that a little bit better because sometimes it is our mission, our vocation, our task in that moment to go through the darkness. So the prayer is not going to lift it. Sometimes we do need a little courage. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a cross and then eventually turns into an albatross, which is uh, an animal that often rescues sailors, leading them towards land. And that's exactly what happens. It leads them out of the darkness. And then they discover that the person they dragged aboard was the Lord Roop. And it's then they look back and they see that the darkness and the island has disappeared. I had no idea an albatross is usually what leads you out. Because that if that's not something we need to highlight, the cross becomes the albatross. She first thought it was a cross, became an albatross. And that's the thing that ended up being what led them through. And I'd also say that in the Chronicles of Narnia, this is the strongest equivalence to the Holy Spirit. You have Aslan, who's the son of the emperor over the sea. Uh, And there isn't really a great parallel to the Holy Spirit except Aslan's breath, which alludes to John's gospel. And in this case, this is where he is in the form of a dove which we'll skip over the fact that that might point to modalism and, uh, and get on to chapter eight. <laughs> <laughs> to keep the pace going. Yeah. So they then come to another island and it's beautiful looking and they land and they come across a sort of ruin with this long table and it's stopped for a beautiful banquet. And they then see three hairy bodies with their heads asleep on the table in some kind of enchantment and they try and wake them up and uh, what each of them says more mumbles is is kind of funny it's like i'll go eastward no more outdoors to narnia Uh, we weren't born to live like animals go east while you've got the chance lands beyond the sun and then the last one just goes mustard please (laughs) (laughs) mustard please (laughs) i miss that and the landing party they're convinced that it's got to be the food that's done this to them the food is enchanted And so most of the men go back to the ship, but our protagonists, they decide that they're going to sit in vigil around this table. And many hours later, something amazing happens, because first of all, this beautiful woman comes out. uh, And uh, Lewis writes that uh, 
when they looked at her, they thought they'd never known what beauty meant. Whoa. They'd never before known what beauty meant. She's just that gorgeous. Mm, Sarah Smith. (laughs) (laughs) And she welcomes them to Aslan's table. And she asks them, why are you not eating? And they explain why. And she says, well, it, it wasn't because of the food. They never even touched it. It was because they touched the stone knife on the table. And it was the one that was used to kill Aslan. And that was not a thing that they should touch. And needless to say, Reaper Cheap is the first one to try the food and toasts the lady's health all at once. I loved how he toasted the lady's health. <laughs> Maybe that's what we should do at the start of some of the episodes. Use, use a Reaper Cheap voice when we're toasting our Patreon supporters. <laughs> I think it would be quite humorous to see me attempt to do a Reaper Cheap voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah. We're, def- we're definitely doing that. Yeah, um, okay. Can I have a few drinks before I try it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, uh, and Caspian says, well, how do we, how do we break this enchantment? And he says that from the land where the Pevensies come, the, uh, the prince or the king has to kiss the beautiful maiden. <laughs> uh, and she responds, well, here, he cannot kiss the princess until he's dissolved the enchantment. And his response is just wonderful. He says, then, said Caspian, in the name of Aslan, show me how I might set about this work at once. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like me right now in life. <laughs> and... And this, this girl, who is in the book, never named, uh, she then says that her father will explain how to break the enchantment. And then in the next chapter, we meet her father. Uh, he also comes out of the hillside, and together with his daughter, they lift up their hands. As if you know church history, it's the Oran's position. That's what it sounds like to me, the way that a priest will typically pray. Or if you're charismatic, you know, when you raise your hands in the air. So they raise their hands, they turn to the east, which is the, you know, the, direction from which christians typically have historically prayed and then they begin to sing i love that they begin to sing and as they sing all of these birds fly out of the sun and they clear the table and one bird drops something into the old man's mouth which we find out is uh, a berry from the sun which is making him younger and younger uh, because we will eventually find out that the guy's a star uh, and the old man, he then explains that in order to break the enchantment, they need to go to the world's end, or as near as they can, and then leave someone there. Uh, and Reaper Cheap says, that's my heart's desire. Mm, gosh, this makes me think of um, Psyche and longing for the god of the mountain, longing for her amber palace. Reaper Cheap has been driven by this longing. Mm-hmm. Oh, Lewis, it's everywhere, everywhere, guys. Our, our devoted listeners will know this. Mm. <laughs> and if you're not, you should become one. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and then they have this little side conversation uh, where they find out that this man is a star. And Yusuf says, well, in our world, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. And the, uh, the, the star says, well, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. And I suggest this is a critique of materialism, reducing everything in the world simply to atoms as though that's all that there is. And he then says, you've actually already met a star, uh, Koryakin. And Lucy asks, well, is he a retired star too? Because that's what uh, Ramandu, that's what he says that he is. He's a star at rest. And uh, Ramandu says, well, his situation is a little different. It's a little closer to a punishment. Uh, And they ask about it, but much like Aslan, he's rather tight-lipped. I wanted to know that answer too. But this makes me think of what that listener, I mentioned this in the previous episode with our plug for Patreon. New plug. If you guys enjoy this, go check that out. Pine to Jack, Patreon. 
um, and join our Slack community, tier two. Anyways, one of our SAP subscribers who pointed out the Plato Aristotle references essentially talked about they had spirit versus flesh, the difference, and Lewis somewhat seemed to have that two sins of the spirit, sins of the flesh. Kind of seems like that here a little bit. You're made of one thing, but then there's another part of you. Like, so you've got your flesh, but then you've got your soul. I don't know. Let me think of what he said. Yeah, I'd definitely say it's a connection between material and immaterial realities. But for Plato, it's the world of the forms. Yes. Uh, they then bring Lord Roop to the table and he's given a chance to sleep. So this is the guy that was tormented on that island with nightmares. Well, now he's given sleep without dreams. And then Caspian then explains the rest of the quest to the men. So they found all of the lords, but they all still wanted to go and reach Aslan's country. And now that's going to be part of waking the lords. And uh, Reaper has this lovely little speech where he says, it's, it's rather like, uh, but for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord from Joshua. He says, my own plans are made. While I can, I sail east in the dawn treader. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the end of the world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. Interesting. So I, 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 I love your voices <laughs> all the time. I, I pictured a different voice in this scene here. Probably because you've seen the movie and it's ruined it for you. <laughs> <laughs> Good save. <laughs> Never underestimate David's wittiness. Um, I just pictured this was, this was a very noble paragraph right here of how he will not quit. And so mm. maybe it's just how the world has tainted me, but I picture just like this deep, strong voice of, you know, I will sail east in the dawn treader. And when she fails me, I will paddle east in my coracle. And when she sinks, I, will, I shall swim east with my four paws. It's just like this deep commitment of nothing will stop me. And yours is kind of like whimsical a little bit. I think it reveals your own prejudices. 100% probably does. Because <laughs> you remember the bit right back at the beginning of the book? I think it was Rince saying that somebody was as brave as a, and he's about to say lion, and then he saw Reepercheep looking at him. So he said, brave as a mouse. Because uh, the entire point of Reepercheep's character is he is little in the kingdom. He's, he, at first glance, he's insignificant. But if we've learned one thing about Reepercheep over the course of the last two books is that this is a mouse with heart who is great and powerful, even if he's little. And even if he has a little squeaky voice. <laughs> Fair enough, David. So Caspian lays out to the crew what's going to happen. And they're, they're actually a little bit nervous. Will the crew come with them to the end of the world? Because they kind of want to get home. Uh, but once again, they do something very, very clever. Rather than trying to strong arm them into doing this, Caspian says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not just telling you you can come. I'm saying that I'm going to speak to the captain and only those of you that are the best and the greatest will be invited of being given this privilege of coming with us to the end of the world. I don't remember the words he said, but rather than feeling something, they would be feeling left out if they didn't come. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what the first thing was. Rather than feeling they needed to or they're, they're forced to, they'll feel like they're left out. He completely switched the psychology of the people. Exactly. Exactly. And in the end, there's only one person who they don't take with them. He was the last person that was resisting. And we get told a little bit of his story afterwards. The fact he didn't really enjoy his time alone on the island, didn't really want to talk to Ramandu and his daughter. Uh, and in the end, he doesn't even go back to Narnia. He stays at the Lone Islands and tells stories of his adventures at the end of the world. And I would call that, we talked about the three big themes that stick out, maybe like a, a sub theme, a, four, a four, fourth, but maybe... 
with an asterisk, but it was a small one. I appreciated that little side thing because it's like when you don't go all in with this, what are you going to regret? It's that thing that I've mentioned with the Indian beggar who gave four rice grains to the king who came by and he got four gold ones in return and he had eight total and he regretted not giving everything. It's kind of that same vein. For listeners who are new to the show, Matt, I think you told that story in season one. It's definitely in the video series that we did uh, where the two of us are sipping alcohol and talking about mere Christianity. Mm-hmm. But for time's sake, you don't get the full one here. Uh, and uh, one thing I do want to just add to that is the final comment about that man who stayed behind and who spent the rest of his days on the Lone Islands telling of his great exploits at the end of the world. Lewis says, but he could never bear mice. Mm. And the chapter ends with Caspian saying to Ramadu's daughter, lady, I hope to speak to you again when I have broken the enchantments. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And Lewis, Lewis says, and Ramandu's daughter looked at him and smiled. Oh, mm, the romantic in me. Mm. Mi corazón. Bonjour, principesa. And then we're in the penultimate chapter. And it begins very soon after they had left Ramandu's country, they began to feel that they had already sailed beyond the world. All was different. For one thing, they found that they were needing less sleep. One did not want to go to bed or eat much or even talk except in low voices. Another thing was the light. There was so much of it. The sun, when it came up each morning, looked twice, if not three times its usual size. And there's this little little side episode where Lucy's looking over the side of the ship and sees this underwater world. Uh, and Reaper Jeep, he jumps overboard, no doubt to challenge some of the aggressive underwater creatures. But he is distracted when he realizes that the water is sweet. Remembering the prophecy that was spoken over him, when the waves grow sweet, doubt not, Reaper Cheap, there is the utter east. Mm. I love it. And then they then drink the water, and it, they describe it as drinkable light. Uh, it rather plays the part of the Lembus bread, for those of you who have read The Lord of the Rings, this bread of the elves, which somehow fills you up, even if you just eat just a few morsels of it. Except, of course, if you're a hobbit. And so they don't really eat anymore. There is uh, it's almost like they're fasting but it's a joyous fast. And it also seems to give them an ability to deal with the larger sun and the increases in light. Uh, and they also have a rather funny conversation about whether Narnia is on a globe. They mess this up in the movie big time. But uh, they you know, say, well, our world is a globe, but maybe Narnia isn't. We can't make that assumption. Mm, I can't wait to say the one other thing at the ending that I thought the movie did brilliantly, but I'll hold it for a few minutes here. Well, let's, let's then talk about the, the final chapter. Once again, I've just got to read the beginning because this is some of Lewis's best writing. After that, for many days, without wind in her shrouds or foam at her bows, across a waveless sea, the dawn treader glided smoothly east. Every day and every hour, the light became more brilliant and still they could bear it. No one ate or slept and no one wanted to. But they drew buckets of dazzling water from the sea, stronger than wine and somehow wetter, more liquid than ordinary water, and pledged one another silently in deep drafts of it. And one or two of the sailors, who had been oldish men when the voyage began, now grew younger every day. Everyone on board was filled with joy and excitement, but not an excitement that made one talk. The further they sailed, the less they spoke, and then almost in a whisper. The stillness of that last sea laid hold on them. Yeah, this everything from here to the end reminded me of the great divorce, the importance of the scenery. Uh He really makes you feel it makes you desire it. He stirs something in you with his descriptions. And 
oh, every day and every hour, the light became more brilliant and still they could bear it. I remember a little bit earlier where there was a talk of how it couldn't be born. And I don't remember where it was in this book. And so unfortunately, this is going to be vague. But there was a point where they said that some people might not be able to handle the light. And it made me think of Till We Have Faces. I think it was something that Aslan might have said. Not yet. Can't. They couldn't handle it fully. Oh, the Duffers. The Duffers couldn't handle Aslan yet. Yes! That's what it was. Thank you. There we go. So th- this just reminded me of it. But that was a, a powerful thing, too. Of We've talked about Till We Have Faces. Of You can't meet the gods until you've honestly prepared your heart, which is a you know, double... I don't know what the right word was... Um, not a double-edged sword, but it's like you can't... Contradiction? Contradiction. Paradox? Maybe paradox. There we go. Because you can't go to the gods until you've been barefaced or until you have a face that can handle it. Your heart's prepared. But at the same time, it's the gods that get you there. So they're there with you already. So it's a paradox. Yes, that's the right word. And we see them changing. Much in the same way that the Narnian air changes the children when they're there. The closer they get to Aslan's country, it makes people younger. And as an introvert, quieter, which I absolutely love. <laughs> Mm. (laughs) and they reach a point when there are lilies on the sea and the sea itself becomes incredibly shallow and so then Caspian then calls all the crew together and tells them that well now he's going to go to the world's end as well and the crew tell him that he can't do it that as a king he has responsibilities and I've heard people saying silly things about the Chronicles of Narnia uh, and they don't like the fact that there is hierarchy in the Narnian world and that doesn't seem like a bad thing But here we see the flip side of it, that as king, Caspian has uh, privileges, but he also has responsibilities. And once again, it's Reapcheap who spells it out very clearly for him. He says that you'll break faith with your subjects if you don't return. It's not like you're just a private person. And he says, if you don't hear to reason, uh, out of loyalty, every man here is going to disarm you, tie you up until you come to your senses. And it's actually when... Caspian then meets Aslan in his cabin, that he finally becomes contrite. And there's also a funny bit in that scene where Lucy says, um, and you did promise Ramandu's daughter that you would go back. <laughs> well, yes, there is that. <laughs> That's what honestly, like at the end of the day, convinced him too. Or at least it's a straw that broke the camel's back. And so then the children and Reaper Cheap, they continue. And when the boat runs aground, Reapcheap throws his sword away and then continues in his coracle off into Aslan's country. And the children get out of the boat and they wade for a little while and they come to a a land and they meet a lamb. And uh, Lucy says, please, lamb, is this the way to Aslan's country? Not for you, said the lamb, for the door into Aslan's country is from your own world. What, said Edmund, is there a way into Aslan's country from our world too? There is a way into my country from all the worlds, said the lamb. But as he spoke, his snowy white flushed into a tawny gold and his size changed and he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. Whoa, the lamb is Aslan. The who, is, who is like him, the lion and the lamb. Mm, all in one. Mm-hmm. And Lucy, in, in this conversation, it is, I was pleased in the movie. I'm not going to talk too much about it. But I, I feel like I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a few things when, that are good, just so people don't think I'm going to entirely hate on it. I quite liked the fact that they kept most of this in the, in, in the book. There were some serious problems. But uh, Lucy says, will you, let us, will, will you tell us how to get into your world from our world? And Aslan says, I'll be telling you all the time. Um, but it's, it's a great distance. But don't worry, I am the great bridge builder. 
And he says that he's now going to send them back to their own world. And then Lucy asks the question, will we be able to come back? And when I reread this, I got a little teary at this section. Dearest, said Aslan very gently, you and your brother will never come back to Narnia. Oh, Aslan, said Edmund and Lucy, both together in despairing voices. You are too old, children, said Aslan, and you must begin to come close to your own world now. And then Lucy says that that she's heartbroken because she won't get to meet Aslan. And he says, you will meet me there. And they said, wait, you're there? And he says, I am, said Aslan. Anyone that's read the Gospel of John knows that's significant. But there, in your world, I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This was the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me for a little here, you may know me better there. I was convinced they were going to cut that out of the movie, and I'm so pleased that they didn't. And I would say this is the entire point of Narnia. Lewis has just unveiled it. This was why, because this this could have been the last book in the series. He thought he'd write one book, then maybe two, then three, and then we had the full seven. So this might have been the last word. And I'd say this was the point of Narnia, that by knowing Aslan in this country, we might know him better in our own. Yeah, I'm going to save what I was going to say for when we record with Phil and Daniel, because that's just a good word to end on. Well, let's end it properly then with the words of the book, because Aslan opens up the door in the sky and they go through and they find themselves back in the room where they began their adventure. And Lois ends the chapter like this and the book. Only two more things need to be told. One is that Caspian and his men all came safely back to Ramandu's island, and the three lords woke from their sleep. Caspian married Ramandu's daughter, and they all reached Narnia in the end, and she became a great queen and mother and grandmother of great kings. The other is that back in our own world, everyone soon started saying how useless had improved, and how you'd never know it was the same boy. You'd never know him for the same boy. Except... Everyone except Aunt Alberta, who said that he'd become very commonplace and tiresome, and it must have been the influence of those Pevensey children. Hmm. I love that. Already mentioned about that. So that was The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. That was our Narnia book for this season. Uh, any closing thoughts, Matt? Mm. Just you made me like it more. Yes. Each time. And those three things those three things you those three things you pointed out are are it. Eustace, the undragoning, Lucy in the magic book, and then at the end of it, the power that we see at the end of that with the courage of Reaper Cheap, which we see all throughout it. I mean, there are just some beautiful lessons in here. And we're still not quite done with it yet, because for the next two episodes, we are going to be talking with Daniel and Phil from The Lamppost Listener about the Voyage of the Dawn movie. We have mentioned it as we've been going through, and I tried really hard not to say too much, because I have strong feelings about this. (laughs) But that's David, you've already revealed a lot. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what we're going to be talking about in the next week. And as usual, we'd like to thank all of our Patreon supporters. Uh, There's going to be good talk about this in the Slack channel, I'm sure. Uh, And thank you particularly to Rowdy and Kate, our top tier supporters, and John. Uh, And please join us next week when we'll be staying in Narnia, or at least the seas east of Narnia. And we'll be going to the silver screen, where we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>